Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. We're excited to announce this week the launch of our newest online course in the Logos Online Classroom on Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Go to LogosBibleStudy.com, click on Online Classroom, and there you'll find the new course on Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, along with a coupon code JJR2018 that will give you 40% off enrollment in the new course. That's www.LogosBibleStudy.com. Click on Online Classroom and enroll in Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Now, it's time for the program. Here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. Hello, gang. Bill Creasy here with this week's episode of Scripture Uncovered. Hey, I'm sorry I was off the air for the past two weeks, but my son and his family were visiting from Austin, Texas. I don't get to see them very often, so I took a two-week break to spend time with them. My grandson, Smith, is two and a half years old, and boy, he is a little character. It was fun spending time with them. But now, time to get back to work. I devoted our last podcast to answering your questions that have been piling up in my inbox. Well, this week, I'd like to continue catching up on your questions, this time turning to a question that my son Adam raised while he was visiting with me. And here it is. He said to me, please explain Isaiah 65 to me. Who's speaking and what's he speaking about? Well, that is a really good question, Adam. But to do it justice, we need to understand prophecy in general and Isaiah in particular. There are three major figures in the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament. The priest, the prophet, and the king. A priest, by definition, stands between the people of God and speaks to God on behalf of the people. We see that role, for example, in Leviticus, when a person has sinned, and he brings a sin offering to the priest at the entrance to the tabernacle. He places his hand on the head of the animal, confesses his sin, and the animal is then slain taken by the priest into the courtyard of the tabernacle, placed upon the altar, and burnt. The priest acts on behalf of the sinful person, interceding with God on their behalf. The priest is the intermediary, if you will, between the sinful person and God. In the very same way, in the Gospel according to Luke, Zechariah, the husband of Elizabeth and soon-to-be father of John the Baptist, is on duty at the temple in Jerusalem. And he's been chosen to burn incense before the Lord at the altar of incense inside the temple. Now the incense speaks of the prayers of the people. And Zechariah the priest offers those prayers to God on the people's behalf. The second major figure in the Hebrew Scriptures is the prophet. Like the priest, the prophet stands between the people and God, but unlike the priest who speaks to God on behalf of the people, the prophet speaks to the people on behalf of God. He's the flip side of the coin. The priest faces God and the prophet faces the people. And that's why in the pre-Vatican II Roman Catholic Church, 
The priest stood at the altar with his back to the congregation, speaking to God on their behalf. When the people sin, God typically raises up a prophet to speak to them, one who delivers God's message to them. And usually, the greater the people have sinned, the greater the prophet God raises up. When Israel and Judah are threatened by the Assyrian Empire in 722 and again in 701 BC, God raises up perhaps the greatest of the writing prophets, Isaiah. And when Judah is threatened by the Babylonian Empire in 605 through 586 BC, God raises up Ezekiel, who had been taken captive to Babylon in 597 and who speaks to the people from Babylon. And he raises up Jeremiah, who remained in Jerusalem the entire time, from the time of King Josiah in 626 all the way through the destruction of Jerusalem in 588. The third major figure in Scripture is the king. But we have to pause and consider the king for a moment. The Israelites were not to have a king because, after all, God is their king. But after the disastrous series of 13 judges, the people demand a king so they can be like everyone else, with a king to rule us and to fight our battles. So the people approach Samuel, the last of the judges, and they make their demand. Now I read to you from 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning at verse 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Samuel, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Why, they were crooked as a dog's hind leg. Now, appoint a king to lead us, like all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected. They have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this very day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Well, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king. And he said to them, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. You want a king? Fine, here's what the king is going to do. Number one, he will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Number two, some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of 50. Number three, others to plow his ground and reap his harvest. And number four, still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. Number five, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. Number six, he will take your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. Number seven, he will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and his attendants, his sycophants. 
Number eight, your men servants and maid servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. Number nine, he will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen and the Lord will not answer you on that day. Now, the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered in a tone dripping with contempt. Listen to them. Give them a king. And then Samuel said to the men of Israel, get out. So, God allows the people to choose a king, and they choose King Saul, not because he's kingly material, but because he looks like a king. Why, well, he's right out of central casting. But Saul does not have the heart of a king, and he fails miserably at the job. The demands of kingship crush Saul, and he descends into paranoia and madness, ultimately committing suicide at the Battle of Mount Gilboa, taking his three sons along with him, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. Well, giving the people a second chance, God himself chooses the young David to be king. Well, we all know that story, the great story of King David. David is to Israel what King Arthur is to England. He is the ideal warrior king. But David is also a deeply flawed man, and in my view, one of the most complex and most human of all the characters in Scripture. In his book, King David, The Real Life of the Man Who Ruled Israel, Jonathan Kirsch observes, and I quote, at the heart of the book of Samuel, where the story of David is first told, we find a work of genius that anticipates the romantic lyricism and tragic grandeur of Shakespeare, the political wile of Machiavelli, and the modern psychological insight of Freud. And just as much as Shakespeare or Machiavelli or Freud, the frank depiction of David in the pages of the Bible has defined what it means to be a human being. King David is a symbol of the complexity and ambiguity of human experience itself. David is one of my favorite personalities in the Bible. And if you haven't encountered him in more than a superficial way, I point you to my course in the online classroom, The Story of King David. It's one of the best courses, I think, that I've ever taught. I hope you enjoy it. But of course, after David's death, his son Solomon takes the throne. David forged a loose confederation of 12 tribes into a united monarchy through political maneuvering, targeted assassinations, and warfare. Solomon takes that united monarchy and overlays it with a brilliant administrative structure, elevating Israel to a position of world power, 
dominating the entire Middle East from the Euphrates River all the way down to Egypt. In the end, though, Solomon, again, in my view, is the biggest failure in the Bible. Solomon inherited more than anyone could possibly want, and he developed that inheritance. But in the end, he taxed his people beyond bear, and he conscripted them for forced labor, a hated practice called corvée. And with Solomon's death, civil war breaks out. The ten northern tribes become the nation of Israel with their capital at Samaria, which, by the way, explains the irony of the story of the Good Samaritan in the Gospel. Because from a Jew's point of view, there's no such thing as a Good Samaritan. They're all bad. And the two southern kingdoms become the nation of Judah, with their capital in Jerusalem. Between the two, 39 kings rule, 19 in the north and 20 in the south. The 19 in the north are all bad. The 20 in the south are all bad, except seven, five of whom initiate revivals. The story of the kings of Israel and Judah is a great story, but it's fraught with failure with one king after another, turning away from God and following his own path, leading the people to hell in a handcart. My upcoming course in the online classroom, The Kings of Israel and Judah, will tell you all you ever wanted to know about those 39 kings. But as I said earlier, when the people sin and turn away from God, and boy, in the story of the kings, they sure do, God typically raises up a prophet to speak on God's behalf. And in the days of the kings, 1050 to 586 BC, some really bad things are going on. And that's when the prophets are at work. There are two kinds of prophets. Oral prophets, like Elijah and Elisha, prophets who speak mightily and often dramatically on God's behalf, but they write nothing. There's no book of Elijah or book of Elisha. We simply have stories about them in Scripture, but no books written by them. The other kind of prophets are writing prophets, those who write books. There are four major writing prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And there are 12 minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The major prophets are major, not because they're more important, but because their books are long. Isaiah is 66 chapters. The minor prophets are minor, not because they're less important, but because their writings are short. Obadiah is one chapter. But all of these prophets, except for Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, operate during the time of the kings, confronting them and the people on behalf of God. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi operate a bit later 
after the Jews returned from Babylon captivity from 539 to roughly 420 BC. So a prophet's role is by definition confrontational. He or she, in the case of Huldah, a woman who is an oral prophet, speaks against those in power, the kings who are leading God's people in the wrong direction. And they quite often and quite bluntly and brutally speak to the people themselves. Prophets are not popular people. They are hated. They are persecuted. And many of them are killed outright. No one in their right mind would want to be a prophet. The worst job imaginable. But most importantly, in looking at the prophets, prophets always, 100% of the time, speak into their own historical context. Prophets are emphatically not fortune tellers, people who look down through the corridors of time and predict things that are far off in the future. When Moses is about to die, he says in Deuteronomy that when I'm gone, God will raise up a prophet like me from among you, and you must listen to him. But how would one know that the person speaking is an authentic prophet and not a phony? After all, anyone can say anything. Moses answers that question a few verses later by saying that if what a prophet says comes true, he's an authentic prophet. If what he says comes true 100% of the time, he is an authentic prophet. But if what he says doesn't come true till 500 years later, how would you know he's an authentic prophet? What he says must come true within the experience of the people who are listening to him. So again, prophets always, 100% of the time, speak into their own historical context. Take Isaiah as an example. I turn over to a verse that we all know, Isaiah 7 at verse 14, and let me read it to you. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Well, we read that and we think, yes, he's speaking about Jesus. In fact, in the gospel according to Matthew, Matthew quotes that verse in reference to Jesus. But that's not what Isaiah is speaking of. Later, in New Testament times, as events unfold, the writers of the gospel and other people of the New Testament times can look at the events unfolding, look back and say, why, that's just like Isaiah was saying back in Isaiah 7.14. But what Isaiah is saying in 7.14 is something very different. Let me give you the context. I turn to Isaiah 7, beginning at verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Reason of Aram, or Syria, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, was king of Israel, they marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. So when Ahaz was king, 
He was king. In this story, the date is 735-734. When he's king down south in Judah, the king of Aram, or Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, join together and form a coalition to fight against Judah in the south. Well, Ahaz is terrified because he knows that he cannot defeat this coalition of Syrians and Israelis up north. Now, the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, Syria with Israel. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. He cannot defeat them. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Sherol Yashib, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool. And you say to him, Be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, don't lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Look, you don't have anything to worry about with those people up in Syria and Israel. You got much bigger problems on your hands further north northern Iraq of today, the Assyrian Empire is on the rise. Well, Ahaz doesn't believe Isaiah. He said, I need a sign, I need proof. And that's when Isaiah says in verse 14, you want a sign? You will get a sign. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin, the Hebrew word is Alma, the young woman, will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That will be your sign. And he will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before that boy knows right from wrong, the two kings that you dread, the king of Syria and the king of Israel, they will be long gone. Their countries will be laid waste. Well, when does that prophecy come to pass? It comes to pass in Isaiah chapter 8, the very next chapter. And I read in verse 1, The Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen, Meher Shalal Hashbeaz. And I will call in Uriah the priest and Zechariah son of Jeberachiah as reliable witnesses. So then I, Isaiah, went to the prophetess, Mrs. Isaiah, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, Name him Meher Shalal Hashbeaz. And before that boy knows how to say father or mother, the wealth of Damascus, capital of Syria, and the plunder of Samaria, capital of the northern kingdom, will be carried off by the king of Assyria. And that is exactly what happens. Isaiah is concerned about this in chapter 7, verse 1, in 735. And before that boy who's born to Isaiah and his wife reaches the age of majority, knowing right from wrong, which in Judaism is 12 years old, before that happens, Assyria will take out the northern kingdom entirely. And they do in 722 BC. So Isaiah is a perfect example for understanding how prophets and prophecy work. Now, for most of its history, Isaiah was read as a work, uh, the work of a single author. Until the 19th century German theologian, Bernard Doom, proposed that the final version of Isaiah, as we have it, 
was composed by three separate authors during three distinct periods of time. Author number one, what we might call Proto-Isaiah, or First Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, was composed chiefly by Isaiah himself, 740 to 686 BC. Deutero-Isaiah, or Second Isaiah, chapters 40 through 54, were composed by a 6th century BC author or authors during or somewhat after the Babylonian captivity, 586 to 539 BC. And Treto-Isaiah, or 3rd Isaiah, chapters 55 to 66, was composed after the return from Babylon from 539 BC onward, as a kind of anthology written by several different authors. Today, nearly all serious, credible scripture scholars accept the three-part structure of Isaiah. So if we read Isaiah in this tripartite fashion, we find that Proto-Isaiah, or First Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, concerns Judah and Jerusalem during the reigns of Kings Uzziah through Hezekiah, 740 to 686 BC. Seeing the astounding corruption and apostasy taking place, Isaiah foresees a terrible judgment on Judah, the southern kingdom, and her people, a judgment executed by the Assyrian Empire, a judgment that will lead ultimately to God's intervention and the arrival of a righteous Davidic king. Deutero-Isaiah, or 2nd Isaiah, chapters 40 to 55, focuses on Judah oppressed by the Babylonian Empire, 586 to 539, and restored by God's anointed one, his Mashiach in Hebrew, his Messiah. And that Messiah is identified explicitly in the text as Cyrus the Great, King of Persia. Trito Isaiah, or 3rd Isaiah, chapters 56 to 66, consists of a collection or anthology of oracles by various authors written after the return from Babylon, 539 and onward, envisioning a new and glistening messianic kingdom. So given this understanding of Isaiah, then Adam's question about who is speaking in Isaiah 65, the answer is God. Listen to the opening of the chapter in Isaiah 65. I turn over to it. I, God, revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I, God, was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. All day long, I've held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. A people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick, who sit among graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs. Well, God is speaking of 
the Gentiles. Here in Trito Isaiah, in Trito Isaiah, the vision is that of a future messianic kingdom, not focused solely on the Jews, but on all of humanity. In fact, God says in Isaiah, it is not enough for you, Israel, to be my people. You are to be a light to the world, a light to the Gentiles. From you will come forth the redemption, not just of all Jews, but of all humanity. That's the context of our scripture. Well, that was quite a long answer to a fairly short question. And we're right up on our time. We're right up on half hour. So let me pause here. Uh, we'll put things away for a while. And I'll see you again next week. I look forward to it. Have a blessed week. Keep me in your prayers as I'll keep you in mind. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Don't forget, we've just launched Joshua, Judges, and Ruth in the Logos Online Classroom. Visit LogosBibleStudy.com, click on Online Classroom, and enroll for 40% off by using coupon code JJR2018. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.